I, I took some advice from a mentor of mine, and they said that if you can develop in that market, you can pretty much develop in any market. So I think the learning for me, Justin, was making sure that when you acquire the site, you're acquiring at the right price. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 86 of the show. Thanks for joining me. How are you doing? Keeping well, I trust. Got a great chat coming up for you today. I think you'll enjoy it. Speaking with a colleague of mine who's done a number of small unit projects. And we discuss some of the lessons he's learnt along the way. Before we get to that, here's what's happening with my own projects. My recently finished development has essentially wrapped up. All the settlements have now concluded. We still have one last property on the market and it's going through a sales campaign now. And I'm hopeful that it will be sold by Christmas. On my other project, we have just obtained the building permit, so I have informed the builder that they can get ready to take over the site. Can't wait to see some construction action on that project after so many COVID delays over the past year and a half. Don't know about you, but I've found that things have taken way longer to get done this year and time's just really drifted past. Hopefully things speed up over the coming year. Now, before we jump in and start talking with today's guest about small-scale property developments, if you are interested in learning how to develop property, then be sure to take a look at my online training program called the Property Developer Training at www.propertydevelopertraining.com. In the training, I take you step-by-step through the property development process and show you how to find, deliver, and wrap up a small-scale development. We've had so many new members over the past few weeks that I can't possibly thank them all individually, but it's been so exciting to see so many people taking control of their future by learning how to do property development. Take a look if developing is something you've been wanting to get into. Don't forget, you can always catch me on Insta and Facebook with my latest project updates and other news under the handle of Property Developer Podcast. And remember to dig back into the archives and take a listen to some of the fantastic past guests I've had on the show, including a great chat I had with developer Jonathan Hallinan back in episode 77. While Jonathan has done some amazing projects, including high-rise towers, he did start off doing some humble renovations and spent a lot of time and effort trying to maximise his returns. Well... You know, it was a very successful project. I mean, I bought the front house for 90 grand. I spent, you know, just most carpentry apprenticeship money and a little bit of weekend project money uh, renovating it. Remember, I sold that front house and made $100,000. Remember, I bought the whole property for only 90. So to make $100,000, I'm now only 20. was like I thought I was the king. You know, it was just incredible. Then I spent that 100000 building the unit on the back. I lived in the front one, so it was obviously my principal place was tax-free. I then moved into the back one, principal place tax-free, made another $100,000 on that. And then I had 200000 and then I went and bought a number of two, three, four unit sites. Jonathan shares so much gold in that chat, so I encourage you to go back and take a listen to episode 77. It was certainly a highlight for me to speak with Jonathan. Okay, on to today's guest, Paul Wilding from Raphael & Co. Property Group. I've known Paul for a few years now and he's been doing a number of small unit projects around Melbourne, some in similar areas to my own projects. Paul has taken the quintessential development journey, going from a small renovation project through to managing multiple small unit developments. Paul shares his insight into what he's learnt along the way, including the importance of understanding market dynamics, how to start and grow a developing business, and how to research and analyse a new area to ensure you are delivering a product that meets market expectations. There's lots of practical advice and insight in this conversation, and I'm sure you will enjoy it. I kicked off by asking Paul about his favourite food. Yeah, I think for me, Justin, it's going to be pizza. And generally half and half. So it's half a Hawaiian and half the hot without anchovies. (laughs) 
best of both worlds. Exactly right, exactly. And a, like big heavy type pizza or the light touch, light topping style? Oh, it's a good question. Gen- generally more topping the better for me, mate. So... <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Well, you and I have been uh, friends or colleagues for a number of years now. We actually do projects in a similar part of town. So give us a bit of a background on your projects and how you got into developing. Yeah, good question, Justin. So for me, um, I was actually in a corporate role, so that was my my background. A colleague uh, spoke to me about a property investment seminar. And I thought at the time, well, well, I had a look around the office and I thought, you know, there's sort of no one around this office that I inspire to be you know, by the time I'm 65. So there's got to be another way. And you know, I took the punt and I went and did an education seminar and, and quite liked the content around property. And um, and then I, I took that further and, and you know, I, I continued with those sort of uh, weekly sort of seminars and, and, and it essentially got educated. But as you and I both know, Justin, like they're, they're as good as someone's, I guess, you know, what you put in is what you sort of get out of those. And then the difference between a flashy seminar or, or a textbook and reality is is even another step. So so for me, I guess it gave me guidance, Justin, when I bought my first property in 2013. That um, that I, I wanted a property where I could manufacture my own growth, and in in doing so, I bought uh, a dual occupancy, and so the front house needed a bit of work. Um, I renovated the front house, subdivided, and built obviously a new dwelling on on the back, and and had a pretty good outcome overall from a project perspective, and and that essentially I guess started my property development career. Um, just starting you know, smaller projects of dual occupancy and then moving more recently into some multi-units. Now, just before you get onto that, with the reno, were you on the tools doing the renovation or did you get other people to do it for you? Yeah, good question. Look, um, my brother's a carpenter, so he has come from, a, I guess, a trade background, so that, that has helped and that, and that has also assisted in terms of keeping some cost in that first project. Um, you know, but I'm not... One not to get my hands dirty, so if it means you know, getting a paintbrush and you know doing that sort of stuff, you know, it's pretty much whatever it needed at the time. Uh, I, I haven't, I didn't come from a lot of money, so this was obviously the first project bought in with a ninety-five percent LVR at the time, um, and and essentially wanted you know a property where I could manufacture my own growth out of that. Um, and and then obviously set set myself up you know, financially for for the next project, you know, larger projects. So you did do a fair bit of work yourself on the Renault. Uh, yes, yes. It would have been you know after after working full time, Justin, you know, on the paintbrush probably to ten o'clock at night. Yeah. Uh, whatever it was going to take, you know, sort of thing. So yeah. All right, and from there, what was next? Uh, so from there, I, I moved in. I did a. Uh, so subdivided, uh, built a brand new dwelling on the back. Uh, for myself, it I guess made sense to to relocate um, from the I guess from the renovation property into obviously a new dwelling, and that was a decision more around obviously taxes. Um, and but for me, it was I, I sold the front one to be able to get me into my next project was was a multi unit for development site. Um, so the equity that um, that I was able to withdraw. Uh, obviously um, gave me that next step in terms of being able to acquire the site, uh, get planning approval and and build four townhouses. And what was that like, that step from duplex to four-unit site? That's a, I mean, it's a reasonable step to take. What what was your thinking behind that? Yeah, um, I thought it was... Probably the next step, but you're right, Justin, is a lot of, I guess, you know, technical things that do change in terms of, you know, cancel contributions is an example of that. Once you get beyond the dual occupancy, you're paying cancel contributions. Other issues around, obviously, servicing and so forth, titles. Um, I, I guess for me, Justin, it was probably I, I wasn't aware of, you know, what, what was required, and I'm a believer in the only way you can really sort of, you know, 
do it is actually experiencing yourself. And yet, and once you get that learnings, um, you, you can never unlearn is probably the best way of putting it. So you work through that process. And, and I mean, I'm still doing obviously multis that, that you're aware of now, but I'm still learning, you know, daily, you have different challenges. Um, it, but, but I would put it, you know, if it's three or if it's six, the process is generally the same. You just might have more um, requirements from a lending perspective in terms of pre-sales or, or whatever your exit strategy is. Um, so in terms of, I guess, once you get beyond the duplex, um, from my perspective, the process is is quite sort of similar. So, yeah. Well, it's interesting you should say that because that's why I put together my property developer training program to help teach people the process and the life cycle of a project because, yes, once you understand the cycle and the process, it's actually very similar on that on the different scales. Like you can, the three and four unit sites are actually very similar to your 14 unit site or your 20 unit site. It's basically the same process. There's just more zeros involved and a few more steps along the way or a few more things to do, but essentially it's the same process. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the major probably and learning for myself was was moving from what I would say is traditional you know, residential lending to to more commercial lending as well. And as you know, as you you know more townhouses, that's sort of the banks will you know the lenders will mitigate their own risks and um and yeah, you know, so you do move into that commercial space. So, and so what did you learn from the four townhouse? project was it successful did you were, there's yeah, always bumps it, along the way but were there any biggies or what'd you learn it, it was relatively smooth justin in the sense of you know with, with what was within control and i guess what i mean by that is you know, i was able to achieve you know um the planning permit um construction um i guess cost was was managed appropriately at the time what i wasn't able to control was was the cycle of the market and if I think about back in the 2018, uh, when you and I were, you know, discussing things, that the market was on almost like, you know, due to APRA lending constraints, the market was a sort of on a, I'd say, a, a downward spiral for probably a period of up to 15 months. And as you and, you and I know, when you're managing a project over a 24-month life cycle, if you if you buy in um, when the market's, you know, I'd say what it is today is a good example. Um, you don't know where it's going to be in two years' time. So I think probably the important thing was was making sure that I bought the land or you know, acquired the land at the right price. And in terms of what I do just in terms of my GRV, I try and keep it quite conservative. I look at um, comparable sales at this point in time. So I'm not looking to inflate things and try and predict where the market will be in two years' time. I prefer to be more conservative with the GRV and actually, you know, say, well, you know, if I get an extra five percent in two years' time, fantastic. But if I don't, then I'm I'm, I'm covered as well because I found back in the 2018 cycle, um, you know, the market was, you know, I, I guess it it was it was pretty flat. Um, there was a lot of constraints around lending, both for developers but anyone purchasing, and um, it was a tough market to sell. In. And and I think you and I joked at the time. Even even agents had to relearn how to sell product. So um, you know, I think I, I took some advice from a mentor of mine, and they said that if you can develop in that market, you can pretty much develop in any market. So I think the learning for me, Justin, was making sure that when you acquire the site, you're acquiring at the right price, but also um, controlling your construction costs. And, and having multiple exit strategies towards the end because you, know, you, you cannot predict where the market will be in two years' time, but the decisions you can make, I guess, up front can mitigate any risk. So that's probably the biggest learning of that project. But, but overall, uh, a, a strong outcome um, under the circumstance. Yeah, and I think that's a good part about property developing is that you can generate and have multiple exit strategies. And I'm, I think there's other investment, property investment uh, options that perhaps don't have the same number of exit strategy possibilities that small developments do. Yep, absolutely agree with that. 
And I remember back then land prices didn't really drop that much. So end sale prices were a bit soft, but land prices didn't really come back that much. So it made it all the more challenging to try and acquire something that worked at the time. Yes. And, and I think we're experiencing that now, Justin, as well. Just in, in, you know, the land values, are, you know, it's the opposite end of the cycle is probably the best way of putting it, where, um, you know, if I sort of had the crystal ball now, I would have probably over the last 12 months acquired a few more sites. Um, I've been probably a bit more conservative in reducing debt. Um, as you know, I've just you know, completed you know, six townhouses. So I've been sort of reducing debt um, and probably haven't been, uh, I guess, you know, acquiring as, norm, you know, as many sites as I normally normally would, just um, you know, looking at the local Melbourne market. I mean, we're coming out of something like 260 days of lockdown. So if you ask me, Justin, would the market be the way it is now after 260 days of lockdown? Uh, I wouldn't have been able to predict that, predict that. So, yeah, it's definitely challenging at the moment in terms of the market because land prices have gone up and sales prices have also gone up. But now we've got these crazy rises in construction costs. So I think with developing, I think there's always a phase of the developing cycle that's uh, more difficult than other parts at different times, whether it's acquiring the land selling the end product or getting decent construction prices. There's always a part of it that's not as quite as uh, easy as, say, some of the other bits. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. Probably for me, it's it's always been around the finance and um, the, I guess the, the lenders and, the, you know, I guess their requirements and their, I'll say their, their tactics, Justin, at times with, you know, say a low valuation and, uh, oh, wait a minute, need to come up with more equity uh, to fund the project. So I, I've turned my head around a few years ago if you asked me the question around how do I deal with finance, I would have been, you know, it's frustrating. Um, now I see it as an opportunity. You know, it's, it's a learning opportunity. And I think it's the only way you can sort of frame your mindset towards it because you know, it, it won't, it's not straightforward. And depending on different lenders, they've got different requirements. And you know, if it's two or if it's six, um, they're gonna, you know, you're going to be different finance as well. And, and, and you know, I guess diff, um, different capital investment you know, as well required. So, yeah, so I often talk about that on this show and also in the training about embracing the challenges of property developing <laughs> because... They keep coming up, so you need to see them as an opportunity to learn and grow rather than shrinking back from it. But at times, that can be challenging. Absolutely. Oh, and I also call the finance side the the dark arts that the lenders try to uh, employ to pull the wool over your eyes and that some of the terms and the language that they use <laughs> just baffling. Yeah, or, or I think um, if, again, we think about 2018 and, and I think the purpose of me going back there is just to encourage your listeners to, to appreciate the cycle because 2018 you had lenders that would have demonstrated an appetite for development at the time for the previous 10 years to be pretty much out of development. Now all those lenders, you know, first year, second year, um, you know, are, are all back in, got the appetite back again. So, you know, and we're seeing, you know, APRA, I guess, do what I would consider minor tweaks at the moment. Then, and, and we discussed just before probably, you know, there's probably about a 5% reduction in terms of, I guess, someone's um, serviceability at this point in time. And and I'm predicting, you know, that, you know, not sure where this will sort of go, but but, but I, I would expect probably the market to have to soften in the 2022. Um, so the question I would put, you know, what does that mean from the lenders? Are we going to see that the lenders that have been, you know, quite, um, you know, have had the appetite more recently for, for you know, multi-unit development? You know, is their risk appetite going to sort of change um, over the next, you know, 12 to 24 months? And I think no one sort of knows the answers except for the lenders. So. Well, I'm not sure they even know at some some stages. <laughs> uh, then what happened after the four-unit site? What was next? Well, I, uh, so I decided to, after the four, I went back and, and did a duplex. 
and I wanted a 12-month project, so I bought one down in Melbourne southeast, and um, I had done a fair bit of market research around the target area, um, really sort of had a focus on on what in product was selling and what the what the local market wanted, and I, I sort of made the deliberate move away from what I would what I would have considered a, a generic sort of townhouse um, stock to to more of a higher end sort of duplex finish, and probably the learnings in that project, apart from um, being in and out in twelve months, because I. Bought, bought it with a permit um, in place, but then I, I made some minor amendments just to make sure I got the design right. But um, you know, the market itself um, sort of you know, took off late sort of 19 in, in the 20 and or continues now, as we know. Um, but I was in and out in 12 months and and the duplex, you know, I had you know, support from Cancel and we were discussing that before in terms of, now, some councils are, you know, quite um, we are to advocate for development, and you have others where it's like trying to get blood out of stone at times, and everything appears to be you know, an unnecessarily fight, and, and maybe at times, you know, councils may forget who their customers are at times. And but the benefit about this project, apart from being in and out in twelve months, was you know the, the return was upwards of twenty five percent. Um, being a duplex under residential lending as well, um, you know, not less, I guess, capital required. Um, you know, I'd call out for your listeners, it is a learning from that as, you know, as you've got less stock, um, I'd just say that you need to get your margins even, I guess, it's more critical to get those right because um, now I made that move to more into a higher end sort of market, and uh, whilst I had a very good outcome, I still had to control the construction costs and make sure that I weren't overcapitalising. Um, because you know, as I said, your margins with West Stock are actually even more thin. Um, now, if you say, for example, if you've got six townhouses, you can, you know, probably afford to lose five percent on each. But if you've only got two, you can't afford to. To lose twenty percent overall, so it can be make or break. So I think you know, I just encourage your listeners, Justin, to, to get educated, do their own market research, make sure they're using comparable sales in the last three months, making sure they're acquiring the land at the right price, um, making sure that they're putting through cancels going to be an appropriate um, and and is going to be in demand as well. And um, you know, for that project um, was quite smooth sailing and um, so much so I'm currently looking at doing a number of duplexes at the moment as well. So I've just um, just finished um, that six townhouses, as you're aware, Justin, which was the project um, after the duplex. And um, uh, so I don't know, how, how do I put this other than I, I'd say that it was um, harder to get the permit than what it was to construct the townhouses. In fact, you know, the, you can get the townhouses completed, um, you know, quicker than what you can get a permit at times, um, which just, you know, sounds crazy when, you know, when you know, all the media is reporting, you know, there's not enough homes for people and, um, and you know, as developers, you know, we, we're generally trying to, to have a desirable in product that, that, um, that people want to be able to call their home. And, um, you know, it, it shouldn't take, in my view, you know, 12 months to get a permit through, um and you know when when you can you, know, you can build you know six townhouses in ten months for example so yeah yeah no I absolutely think it's ridiculous that it takes minimum two years to bring a four townhouse project to market supposedly when we have a shortage of houses yes absolutely but, agree. Uh, I want to come back to the six townhouse project, but just going back to the duplex, you said you went back and made some amendments to the permit. What what were you looking to change? What was it that you didn't think quite yeah, worked? Good, good question. So I, I noticed that in the area, it was in a, an area that had, you know, so, so I think the listeners will sort of, you know, pick this up pretty quickly, but it was a high desirable um, school zones within the southeast. And really, so the designs that are important there, so it's your traditional sort of four-bedroom, you know, three-bath townhouse. Um, 
But, but I think what was important was that you look at the demographic in those areas and generally they want a master bedroom downstairs. And and then in addition to that, um, I, I put like a kids' retreat upstairs and, and almost mirrored the master bedroom downstairs upstairs as well. So, you know, the end product was desirable for, um, you know, I guess a family with uh, multi-generational. So they might have, you know, the grandma or the grandpa um, live downstairs and then upstairs it's sort of, you know, more the family. So you've got, you know, the kids and, and the wife and the husband generally. And I found um, having those... Uh, I guess you know, the kids retreat upstairs and also having a master bedroom downstairs um, be quite desirable um, you know, as, as obviously an in-sale perspective and um, from a demand perspective. But I think the other thing important with the duplex is that I'd encourage listeners when – so when I acquired the site, the plans were, you know, townhouse, I guess one was larger than townhouse two and a different, um, I guess, layout. And my view was if you want to generally, I guess, control construction costs, it, it would make sense to mirror and, you know, mirror the size and mirror the, you know, the design. And um, that's essentially what I did. So I made some minor amendments, obviously, to the layout, but I just made sure that, um, you know, essentially I, I was mirroring um, the floor plan as well because, my exit strategy with that project was just to probably reduce some of the uh, costs associated with marketing and, and selling um, at the end was in, in that suburb it was, um, you know, auctions were obviously prominent. So so I took that property to, to auction, um, you know, and I guess anyone sort of um, bidding wasn't aware that the second dwelling was also for sale. So the process was to, to you know, all things going right attracted obviously a bit of demand and a bit of competition and then it, um, you know for the person that unfortunately missed out um, you know there is another product available and um, and, and that's the, the I guess the, the strategy that I, I took into that project and you said you did a fair bit of research in the lead up to the acquisition what were you doing there to satisfy yourself of what the demand was? Yeah, good, good question. So for me, I was probably fundamentally looking at square metre rates, Justin. So I was looking at, you know, what, what can I acquire a, a, an old dwelling, for example, on now on 700 square metres, and and what can I sell out new product at? And um, I mean, at the time, you know, you're sort of getting, you know, I guess three times the land value. So it just, you know, it was a bit of a no-brainer. But what was important was making sure that the your end product was also desirable. You, you didn't overcapitalize for the local market, um, but I guess the spec was was appropriate. So you can obviously you know attract you know, you know obviously the, I guess the sell point that you need to to, to obviously exit. So um, I did I did a bit of due diligence. Um, you know, I, I do look at comparable sales. Um, I do more square meter rates. Um, and, and that's pretty much the main, main So you obviously, well, I presume you were talking to a lot of local agents, asking them what the market wanted? Uh, not necessarily. I find at times, Justin, you know, agents, you know, no disrespect to the agents, but I'll um, tell you sort of what you want to hear. So, so I would encourage your listeners to, to I think, you know, yes, Consult professionals, but at the same time, um, you know, go and test that that theory as well. And, um, and I think there's no better way than sort of you know getting on council websites, having a look at you know plans that are being submitted, um, looking at you know REA for example, and looking at um, you know, what's recently sold and and you know how much, and um, and then also looking at you know end products and what is desirable and why are some you know, getting higher than others and I think it's important to sort of know that I'd encourage also your listeners to to you know get down to the auctions you know, go through both um, I guess you know a, you know a standard old old um, house for example go to an auction there and see what it's getting in the local area but also go to a, a end product and, and go to one of those auctions as well and then understand. Why is that getting more? What is the demand? What have, what finishes? You know, why is the spec different? What is required for the local market? So I'd encourage um, listeners not just to obviously speak to local um, agents, but I would encourage them to actually go and 
do some of the legwork themselves to have some confidence. Yeah, it's really important because the the thing to keep in mind when you're talking to agents is that they are going to tell you what's easy for them to sell, what's the easiest thing for them yeah. to sell. And that's probably yeah. going to be the more bells and whistles, the better at the lowest possible price because the agents just want to get a quick sale really. Not all of them, but that's kind of what they want is a relatively quick and easy sale. So that's where, as you say, you've got to get down to the ground and have a look at what's for sale and what it looks like, what it feels like, and then you can make your own decision about what to include. Absolutely. Okay, so then uh, the the duplex reminded you that there wasn't enough... uh, pain and pleasure in doing a project and you wanted to get back into something a bit bigger? Yeah, so after after that one, Justin, I've obviously more recently completed um, six townhouses and um, and a lot of lessons learned along the way. Um, again, got one currently on the market at the moment uh, for sale. I tend to – I took some advice from a developer a few years ago um, and I, and I asked um, him essentially, uh, if you could change anything, what would you do differently now? And that's you know, one of the questions that you ask your, obviously, um, podcast um, presenters. And um, the feedback was if I could retain some stock, I would have. And, and so I've made sure that with my multis I've um, retained some stock and I do it deliberately. And, and I think probably the other thing that I, I would like to call out, when I, when I design the townhouses, I do it with the mind of, you know, could I live there myself? And the reason being, if you can sort of, you know, do your design that way, and I think you get better outcomes in terms of practicality and, um, and you just, you know, I guess it's more livable. So... So for myself with the six townhouses, um, and you've seen them, Justin, I've, I've used sort of a matrix cladding, which um, on the exterior, it's sort of, you know, not, you know, you won't see it around our neck of the woods generally. Um, you see it sort of inner city. But I guess for myself, um, you know, I guess I do more, you know, boutique small developments. So I, I want to be able to, you know, in, in 10 years' time, drive past the site and be be very proud. And, um and so for myself, you know, my level of finish or, you know, the materials I'm using, I'm not necessarily looking for the cheapest product. I'm looking for something I could, you know, feel proud about that is a, a great end product, um, you know, for someone whoever's going to buy the product. And, um, and you know, where I, where I can, I try and you know, retain some product as well, you know, obviously, you know, listening to a, to a, a men- previous mentor. So, um more recently completed six townhouses, uh, you know, had some initial issues with, with cancel and some um, hiccups along the way. Um, you know, got there in the end, what wasn't an easy process, as you know, dealing with um, our local cancel times um, that can can be, um, I guess, you know, cumbersome. Um, you know, but, but I think if, if there's any learning from that, and I think you were hinting on it before, Justin, around the resilience required, for, you know, for developers. And and I would just in, encourage, you know, your listeners, um, as something that, that sits close to me um, is, you know, terminology of don't just accept no you know, for the answer. So, you know, and I guess what I'm saying in that is be solution-focused. So, you know, if someone says no, um, you know, look for an alternative. And, um, you know, I know sometimes at VCAT, <laughs> you know, you know, I mean, it's not not as straightforward as that, but, but I guess you know you, you can resubmit new plans and um, go through a new application, take on board their feedback. But I guess if you go into a development project with a mentality of not necessarily accepting no, um, it, it keeps you being solution focused, and and if it means that you need to engage another consultant or a professional to get you know more advice because you've you know run into a roadblock or cancel or something like that. Um, I just encourage all your listeners to go in with that mentality and focus you know, on on being solution minded as opposed to just accepting no. Because in in all my developments, um, 
you know, there's obviously been quite a few no's, but um, but you wouldn't get to where you are if you don't find, you know, solutions. So, oh, it's a really good point. I've I brought it up in my in the training as well for people because I wanted them to know that no doesn't always mean no. Yeah, it's for a lot of people. No is just an instinctive response. A lot of uh, council officers, or even a lot of and, and consultants, they can be conservative. And so, in order to try and protect themselves or protect you, yeah. they'll give you a conservative answer, and that answer might be no. But if you probe a bit further or ask questions or seek some alternative advice, more often than not you can actually come up with a solution to get around what that objection is. Yep. No, absolutely agree. So I guess, you know, so I've got one for sale currently at the moment. I probably expect, you know, within 60 days that'll be done and dusted and project complete. Um, so I've got recently just got some plans on another duplex, which um, I'm excited to, to obviously start you now turning some soil shortly on that project. And then I think I'm also now looking to acquire another another multi-site. So I'm just sort of doing some due diligence at the moment, getting in contact with a number of agents and um, seeing what what may present um, over the over the coming months. But I'm also a little mindful of you know where the market's currently at and what 2022 and 2023 may sort of look like. But um, if, if you, you know, my view is if you, you know pay the right price and um, you know, do your due diligence and um, use you know, conservative GRVs in the current market. Um, you know, there's no use worrying you know, where, where 2022 or 2023 may be. You know, worst case scenario, as, as you know, Justin, you can retain some stock and pull the equity out and move on to the next project. So I think for me, you know, being able to manufacture the growth um, and, and do the due diligence and obviously get the GRVs right, get, get obviously the feasibility right. Um, that's sort of where my focus is um, in the next, next, I guess, two years because you, know, you, you can't control, you know, what's happening, you know, essentially in the market. So, but, it, but you can obviously mitigate any any risk. So that, that's the approach that I'll be taking. Yeah, and my view is almost your worst-case scenario if you plan your project correctly is that you end up with a an asset a built physical asset that yep. gives you some options whether you have to sell that cheaply or whether you find a way to hold on to it but you do have some options for a for a physical asset that should over time appreciate in value yeah that, that's right i mean at the end you know you got what a wholesale product at a, at a pretty much a you know, retail price so no you're right um, worst case, you know, pull some equity out and move on to the next. So. so tell me, what have you learned about yourself along the way through your developing journey? Yeah, good, good question. I think um, well, there's been a few sleepless nights, Justin. <laughs> I well, find so you're, uh, you're another guest on the podcast who um, <laughs> obviously lost a bit of hair along the way as well. Yes. Yes, yes, and, and going grey as we speak as well. So. <laughs> it's lucky it's a podcast and uh, no one gets to see the lack of hair on the head of my guests. <laughs> Look, someone asked me yesterday about development and I, I sort of described it you know, in, in almost stages and, and I think what I mean by that, Justin, is, and you know this, you know, when you're looking to acquire sites, you, you, you get busy all of a sudden and then... Um, you get into planning, you, you, you know, you're sort of, you know, you're doing your design work, so you're very busy again. Then you submit to cancel and you're sort of scratching your head looking for something to do for, for a couple of months, um, unless you've got obviously, you know, pre-sale requirements and all that sort of thing and that. Um, and then, you know, before you know it again, you're, you're back into it, and you're, you know, getting obviously your, you know, your building permit ready and you you, know, you want to obviously engage, you know, your, your builder and um, you want to, you know, do your, drawings and all that sort of construction plans. So you start getting busy again. Um, and then essentially you're, you're waiting for that that stamp from, from cancel that you and I sort of joke about now, how long does it sort of you know, take at times. Um, but then you, you know, find you've got some sort of time up your sleeve again and um, you hand over to the builder and the builder gets on their merry way. 
And you know, you're sort of there more sort of you know keeping an eye on the progress. Um, but, but again, it's not that busy for you as a developer at that point in time, but you're starting to consider your exit strategy and you're looking at the market and who you're going to engage to sell your product and all sorts. But, but again, it's not that busy. But then you get towards the end and you're managing your subdivision and you, know, you want to get your titles through. And you know, if it's not dealing with the land survey, then you're dealing with a conveyancer and um, you know, a vendor potentially with um, consent. And um, and obviously cancel with consent as well, and um, and you're busy again, and then you know, then you essentially hand over to an agent at the end, and again you're scratching your head, going, well, where to sort of next? You're not so busy. You letting the, you know, the agent do what they need to do, um, and and you're starting to look for another site. So I've I found I described almost a development cycle, sort of like. Um, you know, you're running at a fast pace or you're sprinting almost and then you're sort of slowing down then you're sprinting again and um and, and it continues in that cycle and i think what i've done over the last couple of years because i'm sort of trying now to uh, manage multiple projects i'm trying to essentially from a from a business perspective you know have some in construction as others are going through planning um and i find as you you know you experience and, and, you, and your skill set, you know, improves over the years, like the journey, um, you can manage multiple projects at different times. And and I think, you know, essentially what I'm sort of, you know, advising the listeners to do is to probably start small, get the experience up and, um, and evolve. And I think that's sort of important because there are differences, obviously, between, you know, a duplex and some multi units and um, and you know what consultants are required and um, and you know cancels appetite and um, the roadblocks that, that we experience as developers. So I think um, my, my message you know really has been you know over the last few years I've I've moved into managing multiple projects and um, I'd encourage all your listeners you know as they go on their development journey to to um. So don't sort of necessarily get caught up in the big players in town. Um, you know, that's something to aspire if you, if you want to go there. But, but just, you know, just understand that they started small as well. And um, and, and I'd encourage your listeners to to obviously you know, um, you know, start start smaller. I know you didn't haven't taken my advice, Justin, the size of your project. But, uh, but, um, but you know, I would encourage them, you know, development is, is sort of you know, evolution and um and you know I still learn daily with all my projects and um and and that's what gets me up in you know sort of in the morning and wanting to continue um aspiring towards obviously um you know property development career so yeah well I had that this year where two projects for whatever reason ended up kind of overlapping with one big project finishing up and concluding right as I was starting to try and get another one out of the ground and that was yeah had its uh, had its moments Paul trying to juggle that yeah absolutely and tell me what about uh, the greatest challenge that you would have faced in your in delivering a project it's probably um Good, good learning for for all the listeners out there. It was um so that I guess the the six townhouse project um just recently completed. So I so there's probably a few earnings here. So um acquired the site with a with a twelve month settlement, um and and obviously early access is one of the provisions because um I wanted to get planning underway, and essentially um. So the 12-month settlement had had all it could be extended by the vendor, and so um, obviously I went through the planning process. You know, had um, you know I had the challenges with cancel around obviously what they thought was uh, best use of the site versus you know in reality uh, what what in my view based on. Um, you know, zoning and um, overlays and um, I guess you know, professional feedback. Um, what was um, what was you know, my view of best use of the site? So there's a number of sort of you know, toing and froing in terms of there, and um, and look in the end, I did get you know I guess the desired outcome in terms of the six, but um, I guess 
I, I would, you know, I want to share the story that, um, you know, it, it's important to build a relationship with, with obviously the town planner at Cancel so you can you know, keep them, I guess, as on site as, as possible. And, um, and, you know, whilst it can get extremely, you know, frustrating at times, um, I think it's, you know, important to maintain a level of professionalism. And, and I did talk to you, Justin, before about sometimes I do feel like Cancel's I've forgotten who the real customer is, um, you know, and that, that is us as developers because, um, you know, there are a number of fees that we pay to support the process that obviously keeps um, planners in planning roles. And, um, you know, so if I, if I talk about that project, so I got the permit through, the vendor did ask for an extension because uh, essentially the vendor was waiting on another townhouse to be built for him to be able to move into. So I got an extension. And it was just right at a time when the market was really sort of softening up. And I was sort of the back end of um, 20, 2019 or, or mid-2019. And so I had to get a new valuation done um, from a lender that I was looking to, to use. And you know, it really come in very low, like the valuation come in you know, very low. Um, the valuer did not use... You know, what I would say is, I guess, a comparable site um, because there was no stock at the time. And uh, so a value is using you know, a, you know, just for example, you know, 1,600 square metre site um, that has got no um, development potential versus, you know, my site that, that has a, a permit in place for six, um, all the zoning required, all the overlays. And, and so, you know, I mean, comparing apples with oranges as opposed to apples with apples. And essentially, you know, the lender's position was, well, if you want to settle, um, you're going to have to put in more capital. And it it really sort of, you know, was a roadblock pretty much, you know, almost, you know, probably three days before it was meant to settle. And so I went to the vendor and requested an extension. And um, because obviously he was still waiting to move into his tenure, he, he supported that. And it gave me the option of getting another valuation or looking at alternative lenders. Um, and I guess the, the reason I wanted to share that, Justin, because in the end, um, I used a private um, investor as opposed to, to a lender. So I guess probably a message for listeners out there, you don't necessarily always need to use the lenders or the banks. Um, but, I, but I probably do want to also, you know, just, you know, I guess flag with the listeners that, you know, what was on the line at the time was pretty much my deposits, uh, all, you know, 12 months worth of work in the planning and the planning permit as well, if I wasn't able to obviously get the capital required and a settle the site. So that's why I, I do emphasise as developers, um, I guess, you know, gain experience and, and evolve. Um, you know, the, I guess the more dwellings, the more capital requirements as well. So um, I'd encourage, you know, that's why I do encourage, you know, people to generally start with small develops and work their, work their way up because, you um, you know, the capital requirements can change significantly. The market has an impact on that. If you get low valuations, you know, you've got more capital requirements to put into the project. Um, and, and you know, worst case scenario, you could you know, lose 12 months of hard work you know, getting a permit in place um, and not be able to settle the site. So, um, but I guess you know, when I applied that you know, don't accept no, Justin, that we spoke about before, and I looked for other solutions. You know, I found a private investor that was able to to obviously settle um, settle the land, and um, without having to use a lender. And you know, and that has made things a lot easier now um, in terms of the exit of the project. Also, well, it's funny. I had exactly the same experience earlier this year with a valuer. Same conversation with the valuation of my site. With the permit in place where they compared it to a block a couple of doors up which was a raw site with no permit and they were trying to value it based on that and had the same conversation with them how can you value use that valuation over there or a square meter rate for this raw block of land versus my site that has the permit that has eliminated the planning risk how does that work Surely yeah, you should no. uh, be able to see the increased 
value. Yeah, absolutely. And more, I think, you know, more, more recently I've seen, Justin, the banks to mitigate, you know, their own risk. They're, they're applying pretty much the costs, you know, I guess the soft costs that you put into a project and just, you know, applying that really in saying, well, we think the site's, you know, your, your contract price plus the soft costs and they're not even considering, well, you know, you've got your permit and, um, you know, you've essentially got your subdivision approval there as well um, and you know, they should be obviously looking at you know I guess true land values based on your lot sizes and um, and then obviously your end product as well so yes they don't like to miss out the the lenders do they they will find the ways to maximize their returns and minimize their opportunity for missing out absolutely uh, and then what about Going back, if you could change one thing about your developing career, what do you reckon it would be? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I think, Justin, for me, um, I'm, I'm at a stage now where I need to to invest in, in resourcing. Um, and, and I guess what, what I mean by that is, it, you know, being a developer on, on your own, as, as, as you sort of know what it's like, I mean, you know, you're, you're managing everything from you know, acquisition right through to obviously um, our title process at the end. And um, so I'm at a stage sort of now where, where I need to you know, invest in resourcing. And, I, and what I mean by that is I need to bring someone on um, within the business. And, and, and I probably the truth is I probably should have done it a couple of years ago, and I and it would have sort of you know, I guess grown my ability to manage you know, more than two projects at any one time. And um, you know, and, and then obviously more recently we've had obviously um, you know, significant lockdowns in in the Melbourne area over the last few years as well. So for me it was really probably I've taken a conservative approach, and now I'm regretting it a little bit in the sense that I you know I probably needed to put in the investment early on so I can um, grow the business and and I'm currently working through that at this point in time and so and I've sort of identified that really I'm looking for someone who has the the opposite skill set of myself um, and I think what I mean by that it's just it, it'll allow myself to a degree to free up my time in probably the areas where I'm not so strong and allow someone to focus on that. And I can obviously you know, really focus on acquiring um, sites and um, you know, exit strategies and doing the feasibility and, you know, and all that. So I'm probably looking for someone that can really support the process around the construction management and, and so forth as well because I don't come, you know, my background is not a trade. Um, background, you know, whilst as you know, Justin, you, you're picking right up along the way through multiple projects. Um, but for me, I'm looking to to bring a skill set into the business um, that, that's you know, quite sort of opposite to my background. And um, in doing so, you know, I can obviously, um, um, I guess, coach, coach, um, and mentor. Um, I guess someone, you know, from an end-to-end development perspective. But um, we're going to have someone that sort of really specialises. Um, Predominantly, you know, in in some form of surveying or or you know, planning or even um, I guess construction management. So that's probably what I want to do just in the next next six to twelve months. So well, I was going to start polishing up my resume and getting it ready to send it through to you. <laughs> send it through, mate. I'll take it tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Paul, what about your? Top tip for developers out there who might be looking to take their business to the next level, their developing business to the next level. Yeah, I'll probably just go back, Justin, to, you know, um, I'll, I'll put this this way. Uh, it can be a long time between drinks in development. And I, I guess what I'm essentially saying there is that um, projects can take you know, 24 months from acquisition through to completion. And um, you know, there's a lot of, I guess, capital requirements early on and along the way. And um, and then you, you, know, you get towards the end of the project or you get to the end of the project and all things going well. Um, you, you get a decent drink at the end and then you go, I wish I did two of those. And I, I guess you know, I would just 
go back to the listeners and say, um, uh, allow yourself time to, to get your skills up and get educated and, um, and apply, you know, I guess, the practical learnings. Um, and, and don't be too hard on yourself, you know, in the sense that, you know, what you learn through a project, um, you cannot, you know, you, know you, you cannot unlearn that. So, um, and I'd finish by saying, Justin, just, you know, don't accept no for an answer and always be solution-minded. And, um, and, and it's almost like, you know, visualise, and I know you and I are big on this in terms of, you know, visualising your end product and, um, and seeing you know, where, what the end, end product will look like in a couple of years' time. And um, and you, know, you can do that through, obviously, your design work, your town planning and stuff like that. And, and you can get, obviously, you know, all your um, marketing content done for um, you know, off the plan and so forth as well, where you can sort of have some material that, that you can sort of see the end product um, and control what's within your control. So, yeah. Actually, I wanted to draw on that point that you just made about learning and experiences along the way because you really can't get any experience until you do it. So I get emails from people about this and, I mean, you can learn all you want from the textbooks and you can become familiar with the process and understand the cycle and the steps and that's all great. That, that's really helpful because then you can understand what's going to happen along the way. But at some point, you've got to jump off at the beginning. You've got to jump off and you've got to dive into the pool and get wet and, and start swimming. And then stuff's going to happen that's unpredictable. But that's the yeah. only way that you're going to get experience. And then after you've done your first project, um, you may be able to attest to this, you kind of go, oh, it's done. I did it. And then the mystique and the mystery and the fog lifts and then you feel better prepared for the next one knowing that again there's going to be stuff that you're going to come across along the way that you just have to deal with find a solution and keep going yeah absolutely and Which I just, you know, the, so the question that i wanted to ask you was uh when you took that leap for that first project that you purchased what helped you make the jump yeah, I think it was reflecting around, looking around the office, Justin, and, and not seeing anyone that, that I and, and not no disrespect meant to to anyone in the office at that time, but but it was pretty much, you know, when when I was six you know, when I get to sixty-five, you know, I don't want to be, you know, going to the office every day, you know, doing a 40, 50 hour work. That that sort of you know is certainly not what I aspire to. You know, for me it's been Really about growing my development career and and giving um, I guess myself my family some some options so I can spend time with the young one and um, and and have a level of flexibility in terms of what I do. So that's I think the reason why I I've, you know, I've, I've done or I continue to do development um, because of the the obviously the um, the options that it presents. But you now having said that, you know, I don't want people to feel like you know it's. Um, it's easy either because I think you, know, you need to sort of you know, do your due diligence. You need to get educated. You need to have a good support network around you. Like this podcast is a great example of that. And um, and I guess you've got to be resilient enough to to you know, find solutions when when roadblocks present. Um, and and I would just you know encourage you know your listeners um, you know, to to you know start small and evolve and work through the process and um, you know, get the skill set and um, and I think you know your course Justin's you know, a great starting point for aspiring developers that that want to you know I guess you know, learn off you know I guess you know experienced developers that, that were once in the same position they were a number of years ago. Oh well. Thanks for the plug, Paul. If people want to go to propertydevelopertraining.com, they can find out more about what's in the training. So thanks for the uh, the lead-in there. It's uh, it's funny that you should say about looking around the office and seeing or not seeing any roles that you aspired to do because that's the exact same thing that happened to me when I was working in corporate. And I remember going on a professional development course and one of the instructors asked that very question in a 
one-on-one session they had with me. And they're like, well, when you look up the line, which, whose role, who, who's the person that you want to be or which role would you love to move into? And I remember sitting there reflecting and looking up the line at my direct manager, then the director of the business unit, then the executive director of the area that we were in, and then the CEO of the organization. <laughs> and I just kept shaking my head at each of those roles yeah. and thought, well, this is obviously is not really what you want to do. And I think in there was a kernel in there, a kernel of change that started happening in there around doing something different, which eventually evolved into me getting into property development. But it's, it's a really useful exercise for people to do in terms of the job they're in now. If they look up the line, do they see someone and see a role that they would love to do? And if they do, great, go for it. If they don't, maybe start contemplating, well, what is it you really would love to be doing? Absolutely, and taking the uh, leap of faith, Justin, as we spoke about. Yeah, that leap of faith is uh, is a big step for a lot of people. So uh, what about the biggest trap that you see developers falling into, Paul? Yeah, um, I would say probably, you know, overpaying for a site, Justin, uh, getting emotionally attached and... Because I guess if you, if you overpay at the start, and I don't want to sort of you know, elaborate on that for your listeners. Now, if you overpay you know, for the site, then you're squeezing everything else to, to try and achieve an outcome at the end. You know what I mean? You know, you're squeezing your builder um, and then you're squeezing your agent at the end there as well to obviously you know, try and sell off an end product. So, so I would say um, you know, for the listeners, you know, it's, it's important to do the due diligence, um, use professionals uh, make sure you get those numbers right because at the end of the day property development is a numbers game and um and know the target market know the area know, know what's in demand you know what the end product is 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 in demand and what what you know what's going to achieve you know i guess the, the sales transactions that you require um so i just yeah, really you know the advice that i'd give to developers is just you know, make sure that um, that you're aware of you know, you're, you're you're aware of those numbers because um, you need to be fully across those you know, um, and and do not overpay at the beginning because um, it will be uphill from there. Um, you can't predict where the market would go. Um, yeah, so just do your due diligence is probably the message that, that I would share with the audience. Yeah, and I think that's where. Um new developers or aspiring developers can get into trouble on their first project is because they don't know what numbers, what items they need to know or include in their feasibility. So they just, they don't know what they don't know. And so they don't get included and they get missed. Yeah. Uh, what about best piece of advice that you've ever received? I'd say don't don't accept no for an answer, Justin, and and find an alternative solution. Um, and probably I, I would also you know go back and and say that um, you know in terms of being able to grow my own wealth, you know, I've been able to retain um, some product as well. So I think you know at, at times if you have a desirable product, um, you know, you can. You know, I would encourage your listeners. I can't give financial advice, obviously, but. Um, I would say that you know by retaining some stock, um, you know, can grow essentially your your own wealth as well. So that's probably the other advice I'll share there. All right. Well, been awesome talking with you, Paul. Have you got any final parting words of advice or requests from the listeners? Um, I've got a few projects coming up, Justin, so I'm always interested in joint venture partners. So I'd encourage uh, your listeners to get in contact with me yeah, um, if if they're interested in, in some smaller developments, so either duplexes or some multi-units. Um, so that's probably what I would just um, ask, Justin. Well, how do they get in touch with you, Paul? Um, so there's a couple of ways. So um, yeah, I've got a website, so Raphael and Co. Property Group. 
um, throw it into Google, you'll find me pretty easy there. Um, and probably emails are probably the best method. So it's paul.wilding, uh, W-I-L-D-I-N-G, at raphaelgroup.com.au. And tell us about the name of the company. Is there any special significance to that? Yes. So, look, it is named after my my son. And then um, the wife said, well, what about if we have now another? And I said, well, that's the co. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I hope that wasn't an invitation to her from you. Oh, look, one's hard enough at the moment, Justin. We'll see where things go. (laughs) That was a risky ploy there. Yeah. Get yourself in trouble. Exactly. Oh, it's funny. It's a bit of a theme, I think, with developers somehow finding ways of incorporating their kids into their project. I know I merged my two kids' name to come up with the new street name of the last project that I did, that they got a bit of a cheap thrill out of that. Yeah, well, I have, I have to say my son, he's, he's four years Oh, he's been on a number of development sites. I hope none of my builders are listening to the podcast at the moment. But um, you know, from a young age, I've, I've taken him through um, and you know, also encourage him to do whatever he wants to do in the long run. I've got a feeling, Justin, he, he may just be a developer. So, for example, if I'm going out on the road and I'm looking at a few sites, for example, I've got him in the back seat and he's identifying some dual occupancies and so forth, you know, just by looking at letterboxes at the moment for me. So getting him started at a young age and, um, you know, I think the plan probably would be at some stage I'd like to hand the reins over. So, yeah. Well, I've met young Raphael. He showed me through your six-unit side. <laughs> yes, yes, he, yes, he did. <laughs> very, very confident young man. That. Yeah, might be an agent in him, maybe. So. Well, I think, uh, as I recall, he was trying to sell me one of your units. <laughs> yeah, nothing wrong with getting him started early, Justin. No, he was, he was very direct, so it was good to see. <laughs> All right, Paul, it's been so awesome having you on the show. Really appreciate uh, what you've shared with us. I think there's been some absolute gold that you've uh, shared with us today i'm very grateful to you can't wait to see what your next project looks like and good luck with all the future projects thanks for being on the property developer podcast uh, thank you very much justin yeah, i really appreciate the, uh, the time and effort so thank you all right catch you later paul chat soon see you mate You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.